Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian Restaurant Ombre in Hackney and organised by Architects Fourth Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening direct and unfiltered. Due to the coronavirus lockdown and the temporary closure of Ombra, this talk was hosted as an online event via Zoom so that we could continue the Negroni talk series as planned. Thank you very much um, and uh, hello everyone out there. Um, well, this is weird, isn't it? I still find this weird. I still find all of this utterly bizarre. Um, it might just be me that hasn't quite got used to uh, online events in this uh, new normal. But um, anyway, congratulations to the Negroni lot for keeping the spirit alive, for keeping the events going. Um, as Stephen said, this is the third one to be organised online. Um, and with most things in life at the moment, um, it's uh, an experiment. So let's see what happens. Um, we'll try and keep alive some of the spirit of the old Negroni events from the olden days um, in physical space, um, in the old normal, um, and that means conversation, uh, hopefully joyful conversation, fueled by, um, well, whatever your poison is. In my case, I'm a bit of a sucker from a Negroni anyway, so um, I've made myself one. Mm. It means no stages, it means no pedestals, um, Although we've got our invited speakers to anchor the conversation this evening, that conversation's open to everybody here on an equal footing. Um, when these events have been held in a physical setting, um, that was pretty easy. You just put your hand up, um, or in some cases, heckled um, from your chair. Um, but one of the many limitations of physical, of digital space, rather, is that I can't see you all. I know you're all out there, because I can see there's a little box down there that tells me that there's lots of people um, clicking and watching us somewhere out there, but I can't see you. So, uh, if you've got a point to make, put it in the chat box, the team and me will try and get round to it as quickly as we can and um, bring up your question. Um, invited speakers, if you hear something that another speaker or another uh, member of the audience or another contributor has said and you want to follow up, um, just wave your arms or something or, make, or gesticulate like this wildly and I'll be able to see you somewhere um, along the top. I'll do my best to try and hunt you down. Um, that way we can all try and, uh, well, we, don't, we can all hear each other mate, and allow each other to speak and it won't descend into cacophony. So I'm sure a bit of, uh, a bit of healthy chaos is inevitable somehow. I should also add the bleeding obvious, um, but often forgotten point about this format is that uh, most of us are taking part in this event from our homes. So um, apologies in advance from interruptions from random children going to bed, uh, neighbours having karaoke parties and uh, housemates doing DIY and, and so on. Um, so uh, yeah, um, I'll try and keep the noise down at my end as best as I can do. Um, so the Negroni team have invited five excellent speakers um, for this evening. 
from across architectural culture and indeed this evening from across the world. Fantastic. We have Adam Nathaniel Furman, we have Amanda Bailey, we have Tom Main, we have Yasmin Al-Ani Spence, and we have Peter Reese. Um, I'm going to ask you all to briefly introduce yourselves. Um, let's start with Adam. Um, oh. Adam. There you are, Adam. Yeah, sorry. You're um, all. I'm, I, do I just, we just introduce ourselves very briefly, right? Yeah, tell us who you are, where you're from, yeah. what you do. <laughs> uh, Adam Nathaniel Furman, artist and designer uh, based in London. Thank you very much. <laughs> Amanda, let's go to you next. Yeah, hi everyone. I'm Amanda Bailey. I run Archibu and I was editor of BD uh, from 2006 to 2013. Thank you very much. And over to Tom. Hello, uh, Tom Min, Mormosis Architects. Nice to be here. Thank you very much. Tom. This is a bit like Eurovision in the olden days when you used to say, calling Slovakia. Um, let's go to Yasmin. Hi, I'm Yasmin. I'm a director at Wilkinson Air Architects in London. Lovely, lovely to, lovely to see you, Yasmin. And finally, Peter. Hello, everyone. I'm Peter Rees. I'm Professor of Places and City Planning at the Bartlett UCL. And that's been for the last six years. Before that, I spent three decades planning, or some people say unplanning, the City of London. Thank you very much, Peter. Well, um, the Negroni team have also set uh, this evening's question subject. Um, is the icon in architecture about to disappear? Which also begs a question before we get to that question, which I suppose is what is an icon in architecture? I mean, to be quite honest, it was quite a surprise to be invited to uh, chair this talk um, on this particular subject, because, you know, I mean, what is this, 2004? I mean, back then I was an architecture critic for a British newspaper and everyone would just talk about icon, 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 icon. It's all anybody talked about. And to be honest, I haven't really thought about icons and what buildings look like for quite some years. I suppose other events have kind of risen up the agenda, other uh, topics, gentrification, housing crises, diversity. Does anyone actually use the word icon anymore? Um, well, yes, yes, they definitely do. The icon is definitely not dead. Um, if you read Dazine, um, if you keep an eye on uh, property developers' hoardings, you will see that the word icon is very much alive. Icons keep on coming. Although whether the looming chasm, the looming economic chasm that we were all facing will finally kill it off, well, who knows? Maybe that's what we can talk about later on. The I word is obviously pretty, pretty contentious word. There are a few architects, I can imagine, around the world who would probably use them, use it themselves, other than perhaps as an insult to another architect. They might use the euphemistic word gestural, which is often, often used in place of icon or iconic. And yet it's habitually used to describe architecture by people in the media, uh, by clients and patrons of architecture, by those developers, by politicians, by the general public. Um, and not only in architecture, of course. I once saw an advert, this, this is the most, to my mind, humorous use of the word icon that I've ever come across. Um, I once saw an advert for Mr. Kipling, which for those not from the UK are a brand of mass-produced cake here in the UK, which described their fondant fancies, a very nice cake, I have to be honest, as the iconic cake. The I word nowadays is routinely used to describe anything from buildings to Beyonce. It's quite, a, quite an astonishing word. Back when I was a journalist, 
um, in the olden days. I know my editors would, would routinely slip the I word into headlines and always made me grimace a little, um, perhaps because of its ability to pigeonhole or generalize. But I wonder why, why did it make me, why did it make me grimace? Um, maybe we need to go back to that question. What does the I word actually mean? The Oxford English Dictionary has got definitions of the I word. It is, let me just check, an image, figure, or, rep or representation, connected, of course, to its very old interpretation as a sacred representation in art. It also has, I love this one, this is a really good one, an image in the solid. Well, I really like that. And in computing, a small symbolic picture of a physical object on a computer screen. And in a pertinent edition from a very pertinent moment in history, 2001, it has a person or thing regarded as a representative symbol, esp of a culture or movement, and a person, institution, etc., considered worthy of admiration or respect. So that's interesting to me. That says to me that we can deduce from that that there may be maybe three things that an icon has to involve in some way. Um, maybe a mark of worth, admiration or respect, in which case, who decides this? Who decides that something is worthy of respect? Uh, secondly, that something is that is an icon is symbolic or representative of something else, in which case, what? Um, it also says that something that is an image, a picture or representation, an icon has to involve the visual, in which case, what about the non-visual side of architecture? And I do wonder, I always wondered, I'm sure there is somebody out there, a, a PhD student who has investigated the first use of the word icon in relation to architecture. You could definitely look at those dictionary definitions and connect that word, the I word, with the rise of another contentious word within architecture. I shudder to use it because um, it's such a complicated word. Postmodernism or postmodernisms. Um, all of those many things that supposedly came after modernism and modernisms, not only in architecture, of course, but in culture, society, politics, economics. Or if that P word is too slippery in some way, maybe we can think of the rise of the iconic as part of a broader search after the Second World War, 1945, for an architecture of, what can we call it, meaning, an architecture of meaning, to an increasingly globalised mass society. Um, one a kind of architecture that was as meaningful to individuals as it was to the other weird, weird phrase, um, the general public. And then there's that other word, image. Icon or iconic architecture has to involve the image. And there's no doubt that the rise of mass communication since the Second World War, um, particularly in the 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s, has fueled a certain culture of architecture, whether it's television, the rise of full colour newspapers in the 1980s, and of course, most recently, the internet. The ability to communicate imagery and symbols, of course, has been a part of human culture for millennia, but it's intensified to fever pitch in recent decades. So that's kind of my brief take or introduction on it. Um, to kick us all off, I'd kind of like all of the invited speakers to begin by maybe briefly answering that first question. Complicated one. What is an architectural icon to you or as a piece of architectural culture? Let's start with Adam. Ah. Sorry, <laughs> I have to start with someone. How can, can I follow that? <laughs> a really, really interesting uh, breakdown there. Um, 
for me. I mean, I guess, I guess on, I actually did my thesis project at the AA on, 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 on an iconic building. Uh, oh, you're the right person there. Perfect. No, 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 no. But it was a design project, so I didn't actually think very much. I just designed. <laughs> um, but uh, on the one hand, um, you know, kind of coming, I'm a, a millennial, sort of coming of age in London ar around the millennium. Of, of course, everything was icon, 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 icon. Uh, Peter's, Peter's projects were all icons that he uh, gave the green light to in the city. And we were all, I was, I was very excited about all of them as a, as a sort of young uh, architect. Um, but I guess I, I always wondered why they were called iconic or icons um, when they proliferated. So I think at the very beginning when um, I, I'm obsessed with skyscrapers, it must be a phallic thing. Um, and I really, really excited that we were going to get some skyscrapers in London after a hiatus of like 20 years. Um, and seeing um, the gherkin go up was just utterly thrilling. It still is for me today. And for me, that was iconic represented something you know like that 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 description that you just gave from the uh, dictionary it embodied something both as an image but also in terms of meaning um and it embodied a period of like you know whatever england was at the time of kind of like i don't know hope opening up excitement uh cool britannia whatever the thing is though they proliferated and there started to be icons everywhere and everyone was calling everything iconic and every museum was iconic and the thing is, how can you have so many icons representing the same thing um, or trying to represent the same thing, like just representing development or like a neoliberal type of you know, relationship with the city? Um, and so I guess for me, on, on the one hand, there was this sort of, you know, sort of, I don't know, spraying of high tech stuff all over our cities and towers, um, which was no longer iconic after like the first two. Um, and then on the other hand, there was the idea that iconic architecture could be so interesting if you think of it as architecture that really tries, doesn't necessarily have to succeed, but to embody, I don't know whether it be communities, cultures, a, a kind of contemporary moment or something in a visual way as architecture. And I don't feel that that really happened. So there was the word everywhere, but I don't really felt like I saw iconicity per se in architecture. And very quickly, we stopped getting sort of funny shaped glass towers and we started getting mute brick buildings, which are really, you know, contextual and lovely, but didn't kind of left the whole question of iconicity that I found really interesting. So yeah, that's, that's great. Thank you, Adam. Let's turn to Yasmin. Hi, I, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting one. And I, mean, I think it all refers back to what you said right in the beginning. I think there's two type of icons when one is when it's asked for. And I remember back in sort of 90, mid nineties, endless bids were asking for iconic bridges as part of the bid in architecture, uh, iconic bridges, buildings, and the bid actually prescribed an iconic building. So that gave you a starter for 10 um, when you had to do that. And the other thing was um, when does something become iconic because of history and because of the passing of time? So those are the two the two lines. One is it's being asked for, and one it just organically happens. And when these were asked for in bids, it was often part of to inspire. You know, we, we think of London back or England even sort of 20 years ago. We had certain bridges that were not certain buildings that were not whether that was the Gherkin or the Blinking Eye, um, that were meant to be iconic to inspire people, to inspire communities, to inspire gentrification. We saw that in Margate, we saw it up north. And so the, the question was, and I think there was no better word for it at the time, is do something iconic, which basically stood for do something very different, you know, think, think a bit bigger. 
And those are the ones that we have generated. And then there's those buildings that have just lasted time. And we now find them iconic, iconic, whether we love them or hate them, because they represent something of time, something of history, a frame and time. And that, that's the sort of two separate parts for me. And, you know, those people can differ on, but they're, they're the longevity ones. Thank you, Yasmin. I'm definitely interested in, in finding out a bit more about um, clients asking you for iconic. Oh, uh, yeah. we'll, we'll come on to that perhaps in a little bit. Uh, Tom, let's, let's move to you. Yeah, it's interesting, Yasmin, you bring that up because it's, uh, I find it always quite humorous when it's actually part of a project brief. That you're it is, isn't it? Yeah. Work. And um, uh, I find it um, it's really incredibly strange that um, we produce things. And um, we, um, we make buildings that have physical qualities and uh, that, that have a physiognomic that's translated and usually simplified into some idea of image that has nothing to do with the broader um, contextual, intricate kind of the nature of how something is produced. And um, the, I've always been kind of startled. Well, first of all, I, I've had very little interest in um, the specificity of the image itself. It's very much a result of a tweaking process and an operational strategy. And um, I'm very aware of producing things that are uh, somewhat eccentric and odd in my own eyes. And I just find them interesting based on a result of some process, <clears throat> but they're somehow free from me. And, um, and I'm clear that the public decides a notion of, um, the iconic, and as Tom started off with definitions, um, widely recognized, uh, distinctive, um, important, impressive, compelling, um, offering respect uh, and differentiated, all these kind of qualities that are, are given, or the very general kind of notion that has to do with um, some notion of importance, mm, beauty might kind of enter that question, but of course it's culturally specific and there is no kind of um, singular notion today of what represents a, um, an icon in terms of the, the definition of a piece of work. But it's, um, it, it, it could be something, it'd be interesting to hear the, the various views, um, kind of an odd topic and it's something that I have very little interest in and other than Yasmin, did you you, you just find this is really interesting, but I translate it back into the, the interest in something distinct in, in, in terms of the definition of a particular piece of work. But if we keep going, uh, I, would, I would talk about um, public work, schools, um, housing projects, um, work that you put the same kind of energy and that you are concretizing, forming in terms of shaping um, the physical environment that um, I would think have the same qualities that we could talk about. It would have these various definitions by Connor. Great, thank you, Tom. Amanda, um, as, yeah. as a journalist, how often did you have to, uh, did you shudder at using the word iconic? Did you ever use it? Did you not use it? No, what no, it I, I think we, we sort of banned it uh, from BD in about 2000 and, um, I think we, we used to get press releases at least once a week with, a building, whatever it was, I mean, a supermarket, you know, a school, anything being described as iconic. Um, and as, that went along with 
other words that were used by PRs at that time, like flagship building, well, that's obviously still used and vibrant and landmark destination. And they just all got jumbled up. So the word icon completely lost any meaning, uh, the kind of meaning that you described at the beginning. Um, so it kind of started to mean, you know, architects who were trying too hard or, or actually not even clients. It was uh, not even architects. It was more um, a desire by clients who weren't often very sophisticated to have an architect um, working for them to give them something that they thought would put their uh, city on the map and then they would feature in in-flight magazines. Um, so it kind of lost all meaning and we sort of tried to ignore it really. I mean ignore it in the sense we didn't want to put you know icon building in the, in the headline and I mean in the end it's history that decides what's going to be an icon. You can't as an architect set out to design an icon. I don't think Frank Gehry would have you know had that in his mind when he designed the Guggenheim. I mean it just in Bilbao it just happened to become one because of many other factors not just the architecture. So that being the case, do you think today it has lost all meaning? It's, it's somehow... Yeah, I don't really, to be fair, Tom, I mean, I, I, I did, um, I haven't read your book, but I did go on today and read, <laughs> I did actually read all the good reviews of your book. Um, and um, I, I Review, think, singular. <laughs> reviews, reviews. Um, and, um, but I was sort of puzzled why we were having this conversation because I thought the icon had died as a thing quite a long time ago, like after 2007 and the economic crash and people just not having the money to do, to throw around. I mean, you've got to remember that the kind of biggest icon, certainly in my professional life, was probably um, the three great, sorry, the fourth grace in Liverpool by Will Allsop, which I mean was only ever came into being because of vast amounts of money swishing around, mainly from the EU, which obviously we're not gonna have that anymore. Um, so I just wondered why we were discussing icons. I'm not trying to stick a spanner in the works at all, but um, yeah. Well, I, I, I've got, to, well, I'll, I'll come on to that perhaps um, uh, later on in the discussion. Um, I think uh, I think certainly in that period since the economic downturn of the late noughties, I don't think, you know, people have been saying, yes, the icon said, the icon said, the icon said, um, I, they keep on coming. They well, keep on coming to places where there is still money. Yeah, they're, they're not dead in China, are they, or the, or the Middle East? And then you've got this ridiculous tulip thing, which perhaps Peter might want to talk about as it's in his old, on his old patch. Well, well I mean, the, the Foster tulip, which, I mean, is kind of designed to be an icon or to take visitors up this, this thing and so they don't go up the gherkin. I'm not quite sure what the point of it is. But, I mean, that is the thing about an icon. It's, it's just a silhouette and something that looks good in marketing brochures to attract investors. So I don't know that we're going to see too many of them now as nobody's got any money. <laughs> well, we'll come on to that in a bit. Well, uh, that's a cue for Peter. Peter is a... A nice cue for Peter there. <laughs> well, don't, you don't necessarily have to talk about the tulip. I know your opinion. I know your opinions about the tulip, and I'm sure you can share them with everybody um, afterwards. But that period when you were um, the planner in charge of the City of London, um, can you talk about your... Can you talk about your the I word in relation to that um, now and also now looking back from where you are having moved on from being a planner to the wonderful um, ivory tower of academia. I'll do my best Tom. 
Uh, Amanda mentioned Frank Gehry and it reminded me of the fact that I'm probably the only person in the world who can claim to have taken Frank Gehry into a Weatherspoons. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he, he didn't seem terribly impressed, but he did have a, um, a laptop with him which he produced and, and proceeded to show me visions of various icons he was planning to build around the world. So uh, icons were very much in his repertoire at the time. Um, I, I'm lucky in one sense that while we were masterminding um, an increase of building volumes in the city, which led to the building of the Eastern Cluster of Towers, I, I got invited to lots of conferences around the world, planning conferences, where people uh, wanted me to tell them how you set about planning for iconic buildings. Um, and they always uh, became very disappointed when I explained to them that I don't believe you can design an icon. I, I believe an icon is created when the public make it one, not when somebody designs something. I think if you set out to design an icon, all you end up with is a joke. I mean, let's go back to the definition. Uh, to me, an icon is a small Russian painting, usually of dubious quality and provenance desperately dominated by a frame of epic scale and ornament. And by the way, it's also usually in a badly lit corner. It's a sort of um, uh, a, a religious rabbit's foot. People have uh, ascribed to it lots of um, properties. They kiss or rub the frame because they think it will bring them good fortune. And an awful lot of the architecture which I saw on my desk that was brought into my office when I was city planner was a bit like that. Um, people were trying to design the picture when what they should have been trying to design was the frame. As far as I was concerned, in places it's the people of the picture. Uh, architecture is the frame around them. And it's good to have um, an attractive frame, but you shouldn't spend all your time looking at it. It's what's within the frame that's important. Some people describe architecture as being a conceit. Um, I think in my experience, it's sometimes been practiced as a, a deceit. And so when I saw the title for this evening's talk, uh, I, I misread it, I have to admit. I thought it read, I con, therefore I am, which could be said of quite a number of the projects that I've seen over my years in, in planning in the city and elsewhere. The city never set out to design uh, architectural icons or to encourage architectural icons for its skyline. Uh, London already has plenty of those. It, Tower Bridge um, became an icon. The Dome of St Paul's has become an icon over the years, an image of London. Uh, Lon London wasn't short of them. London didn't need icons, not in the way that Dubai did. So when we accumulated our cluster of towers, at least the initial ones, they weren't, set, they weren't meant to be icons. They were all the solutions to very difficult practical problems. Uh, they were odd shapes because they were having to dodge protected views of St Paul's. Um, they were having to be kind to the microclimate, so they were circular buildings. Uh, they had to maximise open space at the base, so they got cut away at the base or tapered into the base. So the gherkin, the cheese grater, walkie-talkie, um, all of those buildings which other people have gone on to 
talk about as being icons were simply practical solutions to providing more floor space around the millennium in a city that was incredibly popular, had a trading history of 2000 years and wanted to have an equivalent future. So a practical solution to a problem, but not setting out to, to produce iconic shapes. And yeah, let's go back to that. Let's go back to that um, that definition that that the iconic inevitably involves the visual, um, involves representation and, and symbolism. I remember chatting to you before, Peter, about um, your role at uh, the city. I remember you talking a lot about your um, inspiration from um, Gordon Cullen, uh, the picturesque, um, the idea of um, of judging or looking at, at landscapes um, from the perspective of a picture. Um, when, you were, when you were a planner deciding or helping to decide what gets built in the city of London, did that help um, frame your judgment as well in terms of, well, of course, yes, of course, we, ju we judge a building according to its function, according to its economics and so on, but we also judge it according to its visual impact as well. To a degree, but of course, what Gordon was interested in was mainly about the combinations of spaces which were enclosed by buildings rather than the actual architecture itself. And in looking at what happened in the city, uh, how one thing related to another, I, I, I always gave my primary concern to the spaces rather than the buildings. People tend to assume that planners have a lot of power. Um, it's not true in Britain. Uh, the British planning system cannot stipulate what you can do. It can only stipulate what you can't do. It's the reverse of the planning system in the rest of the world. Uh, remember, in the rest of the world, planning was created to allow princes and noblemen to create elegant and efficient cities, places they could be proud of and that they could show off with to other princes. Whereas in Britain, town and country planning was simply designed to protect the landed gentry in the countryside from the growth and smell of the towns. So Britain has never had a planning system focused on creating excellence of place. Uh, and we planners have had to work within those very limited constraints where all we could really do was nudge things in, in a certain direction and actually try to defend the architect against their own client very often. I mean, I was frequently supporting the architect against the client uh, and being the awkward one to allow the architect to achieve what they were trying to achieve. Um, I have to admit there were also one or two occasions when I supported the developer and uh, we managed to get the architect changed, but that's another matter. Yasmin and Tom, um, let's go back to that question of when, Yasmin, you were asked to, you were asked by your clients to create something iconic. Um, and Tom as well, well, let's start with Yasmin. What did they mean? Did, and did the, when you were asked that, did you shudder or did you embrace it? Well, it was the 90s and... Uh, we all did silly things in the 90s. It's one of those things, along with bad uh, outfits. But I think really it's, the term was simply overused. I think it was simply used as, you know, do something different. And back in the day, we had our own office, Spence Associate, and we did the bridge... Um, the Infinity Bridge, and part of the brief was, yes, to do something iconic, because what that meant is you, you know, take the community and inspire the local neighbourhood. And with that was always iconic. We did the same for the bridge in Sunderland, which was also described iconic, because then one neighbourhood felt like they also need a bit of iconic architecture. 
So it was very often seen. I think it was one of those buzzwords, like we have millions of them now. It was probably the, the birth of the, of the big buzzword. You know, now we have from biophilia, whatever, all these sort of words that we keep hearing and regurgitating. And I think it simply started as a, you know, do, do something a bit different, something that raises imagination. And it's quite funny now that it's, it's just sort of slightly gone the other way. So I, I, I mean, got it at the time. I think at the time, actually, there was sometimes even a bit of excitement when we think, like, oh, you know, they want something different. Basically, iconic meant you can do something different. And Tom, and was, have you ever been asked to create something iconic? Of course. If, um, if you have a history of producing work that's um, interested in a certain level of uh, provocation and disinterested in a certain historical set of precedents. By nature, you're asked often um, to produce something iconic. And again, um, as Yasmin was saying that, or, or actually as, as, as Amanda talked about, it's an incredible kind of simplification of something that's um, distinctive, that's somehow important or impressive by the nature of the client. And it's um, uh, my reaction, our reaction, a smile. <laughs> Absolutely not something interesting. Um, we under, understand it. We understand it as a translation into something that's um, that has an importance, that has a, a, a distinction, and that whether it's uh, public, uh, academic, institutional, or, or definitely within the private sector, um, I, I think it's that simple. So, how do you? What is the process of translation? You hear the word iconic. And it triggers in your head that we know that means gestural, it means different, it means... We move on to questions that have to do with... Uh, Swiftly? Uh, negotiation with the problem as it really exists. It means nothing. But does it come back? I'm interested, does it come back into the conversation when you've created a design um, and then a client sees it and they want something that is perhaps more... Interesting. Um, yes. They want to ramp it up in terms of, uh, in many cases, very superficial formal ideas, and which, which by the way, would be a, a, would broaden the conversation into um, the ubiquitousness right now of form making in our educational institutions, and uh, they now expect um, the hmm, a quite extreme kind of notion of shape making. And again, at a very, very uh, unsophisticated level, but which is um, which is post what mid '90s, as we um, as our our operational methods became digital and, and expanded our form making capabilities. And I think I would have said in the last at least decade, the preoccupation of, of schools globally that more or less focus on shape making. What, what do you mean by extreme? Because you, I mean, you've described your own work as confrontational. What do you, how, and who decides what extreme is? We, we're defined as um, within certain formal terms. Um, and um, we used to spend so much time just kind of trying to decide how we define ourselves in terms. In, in in, in, in the end, it's it's so little of that. It's 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 the work you do, and it's the um, the reading of that work in in in, in physical terms, and um, we're very much defined as um, 
I don't know, somebody help me out. It's just that we, we do things and that they have certain characteristics that are seen as um, not conventional. And the people that, that my clients tend to want um, a certain kind of thinking that develop that type of work, going backwards from the work in this case. And, um, and it's definitely gonna connect, especially in the institutional work, which is most of our work right now, um, definitely connects to their notion of the symbol and the, um, the uh, compellingness of that, that symbol um, on a campus within a city, depending on what the institution is, whether it's a museum or whether it's a part of a campus environment, et cetera. And, and we're very much selected out as people that make um, distinct buildings vis-a-vis, -vis, and we're asked to do certain projects absolutely connected to our, their reading of who we are. Mm. Adam, I've, yeah. I've got a feeling, I don't know why, I may be wrong, and do correct me, um, I've got a feeling you might be quite interested if somebody, if a client approached you and asked you for an iconic building, um, would you jump for joy? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, speaking as a millennial, speaking as a, as a, as a different generation. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I'm a little bit suspicious that, because obviously I'm really parochial, I just know, I just know sort of London. Um, but I'm a little bit suspicious that this word iconic in, in this context was used um, as a way to commod commodify um, uh, eccentricity to a certain degree. So like, I, it's very unusual for anything to get built in the built environment here that's, diff that's quite different, that's quite eccentric and unusual. And it was sort of like harnessed by businesses at a certain point to justify, I don't know, larger scale or regeneration projects. Um, and it just sounds like it's a, a way of, it's the only way to be allowed to do something that's different, or it was the only way that was allowed to do something that's different if it's sort of co-opted by a big company and called iconic and everything else has to just be uh, the same as usual. Um, so yeah, I did, I, 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 I wouldn't want to necessarily do the kind of icon that architects were asked to do by developers um, in the early 2000s, but I definitely love to do something that's very, very eccentric and in the public realm quite unabashedly. A number of you have, um, those, those are good, uh... A good tout for some business there, Adam. Um, I hope somebody's out there listening and will give you the give you commission. Um, a, a lot of you have talked about um, how this wonderful phrase, the public decides uh, what is iconic. Um, and that begs the question, how? How does the public decide what's iconic or not? One of the beefs I suppose I have with um, if we can call it iconic culture, is that it is a culture which is very undemocratic. Um, and it also speaks to very strongly to the role of the architect in society. Um, it implies, um, and I think a lot of the blurb for this, um, this event also brings up that other horrifying word, star architect. Uh, and um, it implies um, the singular named architect creating a work of art, if you like, um, or a work of creativity um, for um, a city or a landscape, which of course is collectively inhabited. Um, I wonder if anyone would like to unpack what they said. How does the public decide what an icon is? Isn't that just romanticism? 
I would say yes, of course it is. That's why we have the iconic 60s. In the end of the day, how many people really had such a great time in the 60s, but the 60s are now iconic. Abbey Road uh, Studios are iconic. Are they really? You know, they are to some, but uh, it's, it's nearly sort of gospel that, that gives you that. So it's the same in architecture and some things really people respect, they love, they travel to, they aspire to be, and that's why they become iconic. But it's always just those of a few that makes the opinion of many. So that suggests in many ways that perhaps the media has the greater role or has historically had the greater role in the last 50 years in deciding what is iconic. After all, it is, you know, phrases like the swinging sixties, the iconic sixties are yeah. coined somewhere, but disseminated through the media. Amanda, yeah, come on, from your perspective. <laughs> Well, I was going to be quite polite, Tom, and not kind of try and butt in, but I think you have to stick to architecture rather than sort of broaden it out into, I mean, I take Yasmin's point completely about the 60s and how everything from the 60s is suddenly iconic, but I think with architecture, um, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's been a lot of iconic buildings that, the, that are recognised as iconic by architects that have been pulled down, like the Get Carter Car Park is the first one I can think of at the top of my head. And I suppose the, um, the, the Birmingham Library, um, I can't remember the architect, John Madeline, and um, maybe that one in Portsmouth also by Owen Luder. That sort of, and also, I mean, Robin Hood Gardens, they're kind of iconic. Um, for architects, not necessarily for the public, and that would be things like the Eiffel Tower, the Taj Mahal, St Paul's. I mean, we all know what an we all know what an icon is as it's fed through the media. But I think there is a distinction between what the public would recognise as an icon, as an iconic building, and what architects would see as iconic architecture. We have some. We have some questions. We have lots of questions. We've got loads of questions. If anyone wants to scroll down the chat, we've got lots of questions from. Uh... Uh, from the floor. Um, which... But I was, I was just going to say, Tom, just before, because yeah. I may not get another chance to speak because there's so many of us. But I mean, we had um, in at BD when we were doing the Carbuncle Cup, we had a, a subcategory called the failed icon category. And I think there was one year which may have been like 2011 or 2012, where we had, it was really stuffed with some really good buildings. I mean, really like good iconic carbuncle cut buildings. And we had the orbit on it, which you may remember by um, Balmond and um, oh, God, yeah. um, Kapoor, Anish Kapoor. Yeah. Yeah, that was on it. And then the Titanic, um, the Titanic Museum in Belfast because it was such a sort of literal representation, obviously, of the Titanic. It was like a, a ship with um, um, an iceberg. That was kind of the building. And then I think the best one we had was Shard End Library, which was a library with a shard sticking out the bottom of it. So that's kind of what happened to icon architecture. It just became this sort of dumb way of form making. Well, I'm, quite in I'm very interested on a personal level about that chain of communication that happens. Um, how, how icons or how architecture acts through the media, whatever the media might be, whether it's, you know, back before the internet, advertising, um, television. Um, yeah, it's show business, really. It, I mean, it's kind of part of show business. Yeah, but it also has a, also has a very key role as well. I mean, if you think about how um, the communication of architecture, how architecture became a very public thing um, from the 1970s onwards, um, and by that I mean, you know, it was discussed beyond the coterie of architecture critics and historians 
and particularly in the in the in the you know 80s and 90s it became much more of a public issue if we think about prince charles and his intervention in the uk the rise of the architecture critic and so on it became a very public thing so it had a had a you know the visual and its and how it was um uh, communicated around the world it had a very positive role um at one particular moment um the trouble is I'm, what i'm very fascinated about is that kind of chain of communication uh, an image is communicated through whatever medium the internet today or whatever gets to um, a public or a consumer in some ways the consumer consumes it and then goes to visit it in person and then they then you have that kind of um uh, where you either have disappointment or fulfillment in some way. Either somebody goes to the, the building and it's fantastic. It's everything that the image suggested. Or more often, and I think it's something that you're alluding to, Amanda, it didn't. It fell flat. Yeah. Um, that chain of communication is, is kind of interesting, but, you know, that's my own personal uh, fascination. Yeah, I, I, think the, I think the problem is that we have more examples of where it fell completely flat and fell on its face, like Colchester Vignoli building, or yeah. the one by, I, there's so many, I can't remember them all. Um, but, you know, I, I seem to remember just bad ones. I can hardly remember any really, really powerful, iconic buildings that were built in my professional life. What, that, that performed both as an image and also yeah. in I mean, that's why we, always, why we always go back to the Bilbao. Um, I mean, the, I think sort of something like the OMA building in Porto, you know the one I mean, I can't remember its mm. name either. But yeah, the Casa de Musica. Casa de, yeah, that's a wonderful building. But I mean, not necessarily just because of its architecture. Um, you know, it's a highly sociable building and does many things. Um, but most of them are, are um, I think history should forget very quickly. I like, um, by the way, everyone, I think anyone, particularly invited speakers, just chip in. I like a bit... I think we should have a bit more cacophony. Um, but, so if, if you disagree with somebody violently, do, uh, do, do shout very loudly. Right, I'm going to go to some questions. So Herbert Wright um, is out there, and he says, how important is scale in an icon, whatever it is? Um, an icon can be small, like a red phone box, but scale seems to pimp up the spectacle. Who'd like to take that? How important is scale? I don't think scale has anything to do with it, really. We see an icon that is obvious, whether, like you mentioned, the Taj Mahal or the, the um, uh, Eiffel Tower, because they're big, but there's lots, you just mentioned it yourself, the telephone booth, the, you know, black cabs, they're, they're, they're not a scale. And we have to go a bit out of architecture because it'd be bloody boring if we just did that. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't think scale has anything to do with this. My, my favorite buildings are, are very small. For me, they are iconic. And there's certain ones in Vienna where I grew up, which are tiny little places, but it's, it's when people love them and it creates a certain pride and identity to the area that buildings become iconic. And sometimes it's just very clever things in how they work. It doesn't have to be on the big scale. I'm being told that I can, if I, if, this is a technical issue, if uh, I want someone to ask a question, I can say their name and you'll spotlight it. Though. Amazing. Okay, I want to, I want to go to Andrew Enslin. Andrew Enslin. Are you there? Hi, I am here. Sorry, I didn't expect to be called. So I guess I was asking a question about the zeitgeist, and I remember the '90s and the early '90s, and there was something of the zeitgeist that was about um, the icon. And there were key promoters in those the time, like Herbert Mouchon, who you know both promoted Gary's rise. Um, 
and buildings that now architects kind of have uh, differing opinions on, like the walkie-talkie. Um, and is it not just kind of like one designer replacing another designer? Um, and you change the scheme when, a, when the critics change, they also change the zeitgeist. So it's more of a statement really about that kind of role in the 1990s? It's more of a question, I guess, of uh, how, how sort of the zeitgeist changed. And I mean, we, we look back, we always look back on what we did in the past with a little bit of a, a shudder and a horror in the clothes we wear. Uh, mm -hmm. But we did it for a reason, and it also changes for a reason. No, that's I mean completely true. I, th I think my interest in it, in it as a, a you know iconic culture, if you like, is as a historian looking back and seeing that it it arises. You know, I, I go back to say the the sixties and nineteen seventies, an amazingly fertile period of architectural history, where there are multiple, many myriad different possible paths within architecture. Um, well, I'm very interested in looking at the conditions, the socioeconomic, the political conditions around the world that allowed a certain kind of architectural culture um, to rise. It's almost like, well, which of those amazing, amazing strands that um, that Charles Jenks, you know, talked about in one of his incredible diagrams, all the isms that ar arose in the 1970s, um, which of them actually became buildings? Which of them became physical? Which of them became um, living things in some ways. You talked about Herbert Mouchard, and to me, one of the most interesting moments was his article that he wrote for the New York Times, his review of um, the Guggenheim um, by Frank Geary in Bilbao. And it's an amazing moment. It's, you know, it's where the internet is still existing as a thing, but it it's not, hasn't achieved the prominence that it has got today. Um, so to, to have the cover of the New York Times um, for a building was quite an astonishing feat at that time. Um, Herbert Mouchamp's um, article made the cover of the New York Times with a rather amazing image of um, the Guggenheim um, in the evening, all lit up. Um, and Herbert Mouchamp's piece, I don't think he mentions the I word, but he certainly talks about it being, he talks about visiting the building as being almost like a kind of religious, um, almost like a kind of pilgrimage. Um, he talks also about it being, he, um, personifies it as um, uh, nothing less than um, equivalent to Marilyn Monroe um, and that incre incredible moment um, when Marilyn Monroe stands on the ventilation shaft and her skirt goes up, all of which of course could be certainly analysed um, from today's perspective in terms of gender. Um, but it's a, rather an, a an astonishing moment. A, it, re it, it reaches such prominence um, that it makes the, the front page or the cover rather of the New York Times magazine and the way that he writes about it is also quite telling as well. That it is personified as a thing, and actually the visiting uh, to the building becomes this kind of pilgrimage, this kind of astonishing um, pilgrimage. I wonder if anyone else would like to dip back into the 1990s. <laughs> oh, done it once. <laughs> You've done it once. No, I think, Tom, I think the, the last um, person who asked that, uh, made that question, asked that question was actually making quite a good point because you know a lot of it is about who's kind of running the show in terms of the critics and for a long time we had Charles Jenks and Dayan sort of Dayan Sujik sparring you know from different sides of the room Charles Jenks um, obviously sticking up for the icon and, and those architects that he promoted and Dayan Sujik sticking up for the architects 
he promoted, um, uh, namely, namely David Chipperfield and John Corson, who, who would never claim to be doing icons, although I did actually spot a Chipperfield building in Hamburg that looked very iconic to me. Um, so maybe he's, um, in his old age, he's softening. But I think the role of the critic is pretty important. Following on from that, actually, we've got a question from somebody called KS, which is quite interesting, about more or less about how how we how one judges architecture, I suppose. KS, are you out there? Calling KS. Or maybe they're putting their tea on. I don't know. Uh, I'm just trying. Is it is it on? Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you loud and clear. Come oh, yes. Oh, oh, thank you. Oh, well, but, uh, uh, basically, uh, uh, just a comment. And, and basically, the idea of the icon, um, and I think the icon has a, has a life of its own, has its own history. Um, there's been historical icons, and, and icons have a force, have a power in society to produce areas of resistance, political icons, and so on. Um, and I think talking about the icons cannot be separated uh, from talking about these these powers and the ability of society to create icons. We're, we're at the time at a world that makes icons as fast uh, as they destroy them. Um, and I think architecture is sort of pleading innocence uh, from being involved um, in producing icons. Uh, I think it's a bit absurd. Um, uh, and I think uh, uh, Mr. Peter Cook uh, is here in the conversation and, and he's also aware um, of the uh, power, the iconic power that uh, that was given to his projects and that was able to sort of um, reach me as a student who comes from uh, Syria, who is uh, aware of uh, uh, the work of Mr. Peter Cook and their iconography sort of created uh, a stream of resistance among Syrian other Middle Eastern architects. So I think uh, what I'm trying to say is that icon or, or iconography is an attribute of form that has to be one of the political and one of the aesthetic fields that architects need to take responsibility for, acknowledge and utilize that kind of power rather than sort of um, look down at it as something that is sort of cliche and made by um, um, stupid little private interests. Because I think these uh, private interests are very, very complicated. Uh, they're produced by social processes and they're not to be looked down on. Uh, and when architecture uh, achieves iconography, it's, it's actually something to be celebrated and looked at and explored. Um, well, thank you very much, Kes. So if I, if I can take thank you. it from what you're saying, you think that architects should, in a sophisticated way, engage with modes of communication involving, even involving the media and mass media today, um, and take responsibility for that? Is that correct? Um, yeah, yes, absolutely. I, I think they should take responsibility for it, understand it, utilise it, uh, and, and consider it a part of the attribute of form, and maybe broaden their thinking about form. Uh, which is sort of uh, has been too restricted by Descartes uh, in a way that we only acknowledge the physical presence of the building uh, as a part of the form. And we don't consider the other extensions that now in a world of the internet is becoming as powerful and as important, the images of those buildings uh, as part of their reality and the virtual experience of them. And to sort of neglect that and, and to sort of consider that outside of uh, the realm of architecture and, and really to have that narrow uh, conception of space is, 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 is sort of outdated, I think. I, I, would, I, would, I would certainly applaud that. And I, I like the word extensions as well, which obviously makes me think immediately um, of, uh, of you know, the 1960s, um, you know, books like uh, you know, Marshall McLuhan's Extensions of Man in terms of the role of the media. Um, if, would Peter Cook, if he is out there, would he be interested in um, commenting on that as, 
um, as an architect who was very adept at using imagery and, and the media? Well, I think, I think you can't uh, forego visual stimulus. I think visuals, I mean, I'm in, in lockdown and we're just now starting to walk around the immediate streets, Yale and I. And down the end of the street where I'm looking out of the window now, there's a series of buildings of the development of this sort of 100 years old development here in West Hampstead, which have sort of Tudorbethan turrets marking the end of certain streets. It's an easy throw, but they are, they are a form of icon. They're not claiming to be sort of high pollutant icons, but they were definitely mark what one might call markers. And in these lockdown days, you know, you get so bored of the non-tangible that even they take on a new heroism. You know, you can't get to any really decent icons or decent stuff, but at least these turrets cheer you up as you make your sort of half hour every day to keep fit kind of thing. But uh, I think that Tom hit it quite well, Tom, the, um, Tom Main, when he said that, you know, you, certain architects do certain things and therefore the people commissioning them or interested in them expect something that is not normal. But the not normal can also come from making a normal process that's going on in the building do it a little differently. I'm, I'm myself bored by buildings that don't do anything. I think just to do something sort of funky, and then you say, what does it do? And people say, oh, it doesn't matter. And I think I know where Tom Main was coming from when he was accusing the schools, because I think he, he's very well aware of a school that we both know, that I think he's now involved in, which makes extraordinary shapes. I mean, I find them hilarious and stimulating, and, and they sort of stretch my mind. <laughs> Most of me doesn't take them seriously, but they are none of, even if they're not serious, they are feeding in to the, the sort of language of visual stimulus to be mostly rejected, but nonetheless, it's rather like trying some sort of weird thing in a weird restaurant. You say, well, I don't want to come here again, but I'm glad I went. This, this, again, restaurants. this again begs a question, and we keep coming back to it in many ways, in you know, who decides what an icon is. It comes back essentially to my mind about um, to that very current um, issue, which is about power over the built environment and who has power over the built environment, who decides what gets built, the nature of what gets built, and, and so on. Certainly since the economic crash which I think Amanda talked about very much as a kind of a well she talked about it as a certain bookend to a culture um, of let's call it iconicity which nonetheless has continued to proliferate in, in, in other in other parts of the world but certainly in perhaps in Europe I'm not quite sure about the scene in America but other issues have come to the fore since then um, perhaps of more importance to a younger generation, for instance, gentrification, the climate emergency, um, how one engages communities and user groups in the production of the built environment, various housing crises, racism, gender, sexuality, and, and so on. Um, so I wonder whether, I don't know, I wonder whether the icon is worrying about aesthetics, is it passe? I mean, there are, we've got far more important things to, to worry about now, surely. 
Yasmin, yeah, I, I, been... I can see you raising your hand. Yasmin. Oh, I, I don't think any, any time has ever stopped any icon happening. Um, you know, look, look at Hudson's Yard, look at all of those things. It's, it's things that people want to, to, to capture the imagination, to, to, to you know, get a bit of pride, get a sense of where you're from. It's not gonna go away, whatever, whatever find, what we, we will as humans find different ways to stand out, whether that's through innovation, whether that is understanding, whether that is more collaboration, we will find a way. So the, the icon as such, and I agree with, with, with one of the questions, we shouldn't just dismiss it. Um, you know, we all loved it and it was, we still speak of iconic building and people have a certain pride with it. So I think it's a little bit, you know, we all sit here very sort of educated and going, well, the icon. But, uh, you know, there's a sense of pride with it. So I think there's also a point to enjoy it. And like I said, it's about capturing the imagination. I think whatever finances, whatever COVID, whatever we will go through, humanity, it's the resilience and we will find another icon, we'll create something else. But is it just down to is it just down to icons to be the the form makers? I mean, sorry, down to architects to be the form makers? Why can't no. we open that up? I mean, what's quite interesting about what's happening, say, at the moment about um, the statue of Colston in in Bristol yeah. is there we have the whole issue of representation in the built environment. Um, who gets to decide what gets put up in our streets? Why is, why should it just be left to architects to decide that, and indeed their clients? Well, it's not just to architects. I mean, it's, we, we play a very small part. Like, again, let's not overemphasize our, our abilities. We, we just play a small but very important part. And well, that's why I say talking about the icon, we, it, it's generated from, from, from everybody. It's, it's, it's a, sometimes a thing of the time. You take, take the sort of Lloyd's building, take the Linking Eye Bridge, take the, the Chrysler building. There were moments in time that came and they were a result of the times. So it, it's, it's not just the individual, it's not just the architect, it's, it's the culture that comes with it. But I, I think, sorry, am I allowed to butt in? No, I think you've, you've just, you've got to go back to the money thing. You really have, because I mean, that, that building, which I suppose you might call an icon, the Herzog and Demiron one in um, Hamburg, I mean, it cost 800 million euros. Yeah, but does it take 800 million euros to make an icon? Well, I, I mean, you know, there was a long history to that building, which is probably um, has a lot to do with it. I mean, it's been going on for years and years and years. But I think that if the if the Western world is bust or if Europe is bust, we're not going to be. I mean, number one, we're not going to be spending money on on these kind of buildings. And number two, if there is any money to be spent, it's got to be spent on public space. Um, and that's. I mean, if I was a landscape architect or if I was an architect that understood landscape, which very few architects do, I think that's where I'd be uh, focusing my attention right now, not on buildings, on public. Yeah, but we have a lot of post-war buildings all over Europe um, that are iconic, that people are studying still. So, and they came from nothing. So I, I don't think it, it is just, I think you're right. It is about money when you have developers or clients that push that. But I'm talking about the organic development of an icon that does not belong, per se, to a developer but or I, to a client. Yeah, but I'm talking about what is going to be commissioned in the next 10 mm. to 15, 5 to 10 years, let's say, you know, um, post-pandemic. -pan I mean, this idea that 
we're not going to commission buildings at all. It's ridiculous. Of course we are. But the, the, those kind of clients that want to make a splash, are they going to be spending it on buildings or are they going to be spending it on parks or are they going to be spending it on buildings with a huge outdoor space element to it? I'm going well, to park that for a moment. I'm going to park that for a moment. I want to talk about the post the post pandemic um, culture in a moment. I just want to go back to Tom and Peter a little bit to talk a little bit about how we can. At the moment, we've got this kind of weird, this weird kind of dichotomy between extremely gestural. Let's use that word. Um, iconic um, buildings which are, um, you know, waving waving out there on the on the street. And actually, most architecture, most architecture, most buildings out there, most of which, of course, are not designed by architects at all, is extremely boring, you know, extremely banal, dreary, and so on. Um, we also have a lot. Um, I think um, Adam talked about it earlier. Certainly, in the UK, we have an awful lot of what you might call contextual architecture, which I think uh, Sir Peter Cook has called biscuit architecture, uh, which is you know a, a wonderful phrase. Um, something that's sort of very contextual, very related, very very traditional. Um, I'm interested, Peter and Tom, let's start with Peter. How can we maybe find a middle ground in normal, ordinary architecture to improve its quality, to make it more, to make it almost more iconic in some ways? Peter. I, I think it's all to do with the uh, mixture of uses that you have. It's the activity that's important. The architecture is simply the box to contain it. And I think that we have perhaps gone through an era uh. Can everybody hear him? No, I can't hear you, Peter. <laughs> I was wondering if it was just me. You've gone absolutely okay. silent. I'll park you for a moment and just move to Tom. Tom, can you talk a little bit about, you talked about you're working an awful lot on public sector buildings. As we're having this conversation, um, I, I think there's things going on that really kind of negate the way we're discussing ICON. Um, if you spend time in Nanjing or Shenzhen, um, you're gonna look at hundreds, thousands of individual um, towers, objects, buildings of various types that are all, um, based on some very simplistic notion of icon, of having to do with the distinctiveness and a, uh, a singularity that have to do with the, the, um, um, their own kind of essence. And I would have said that today, and then in, in this city, uh, I can joke with Eric Moss, good friend of mine, that has built, uh, I forgot, 30 or 40 buildings in a very kind of small district that are all his, his work that are all extremely distinctive of his particular uh, kind of process and thinking as, as a character. And we joke, I joke with him that this work is now context. It has, it has nothing to do with this specificity. It is actually the connected tissue. And I would say today that it's been so ubiquitous, this notion of the, um, the distinctive, the, 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 um, the, the, the singular that, that's, that's being driven by capital that it represents the reverse. And again, I would claim if, you, if, if you, you'd only have to move through Shenzhen or Nanjing and look at count the, count the numbers of individual things. I remember I was there with an associate recently and we were joking, can we come up with another shape for a tower? 
as we looked at 200 of them, right? And, um, and again, I think it completely shifts this notion of, of the notion of uh, the, the, the original kind of an idea, I went back to somebody brought up Jenks, et cetera, in the 90s, that I think it's com it's, there's a complete kind of shift that was taking place. And the, the whole notion of Nikon has now become, um, it, it's so, it's, it's, it's so, uh, it's such much a, a given that it becomes a context. And an extremely kind of interesting heterogeneous context, I might add, that you could make a broader conversation of the, um, what the global or the heterogeneous nature of this new context, which has to do with a, 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 simil a similarity of difference or some notion of, uh, of differentiation that makes up the new connected tissue. Well, that's very interesting because I, I think we're, you know, we're very much looking at it from the small end of the telescope, um, certainly in London, where, I don't know, somebody can correct me, but I, I think very little that we could describe as iconic has been built in recent years. And where, if anything, that was very performatively gestural or flamboyant in some way would probably be because of a shift in whatever, um, would be denounced in some way. But what you're saying, Tom, I think is that in other parts of the world, the heterogeneous has become completely the norm. Difference is, is completely the utter normal. We should be looking in other contexts, um, for instance, in, in Asia and the Middle East. Yep. That also then begs the question of, well, if everything is different, how do you achieve difference? Well, there was that there was that OMA proposal in Dubai, where um, you know um, they proposed. I think it was the site where Zaha's office won the Dancing Towers, um, and OMA proposed because they said everything is there's so many icons they've proliferated so much that it's just a city of icons. And they proposed like a huge 200 meter by 200 meter square concrete grid, and they said that's that's how to be really iconic in an iconic environment. Where does it end? I mean, if we all end up getting more and more different, shouting more and more loud, I mean, it's a bit, bit similar to what might be happening in terms of how we consume digital media. You know, you move from, um, you know, Instagram to TikTok, attention spans get shorter and smaller, mediums get more and more instant, more and more uh, immediate. How, where does that end in terms of architecture? Mm. Peter, are you back with us? Oh, I'm afraid you're not, Peter. Oh, we can't hear you. There's some, there's, um, there must be something wrong with your, um, with your microphone. Or something. I'm terribly sorry, Peter. We've, we've completely lost you. Let's go mm. to Tom, maybe. Let's talk about, you know, where, where, do, you think, where do you think it ends? Where do we go? If, we, if, you're, if you're asked to work in a context where everything is... Uh, to say goodnight to my son. Um, if you're working in a context where everything is different, how do you respond to that? <laughs> hey, buddy. Um, look. <laughs> Go on, Tom. You focus on the reality of your project as you define it, and you define it within um, architecture is a social art form. And you define it within culture, economic, infrastructure, urban, landscape, et cetera, et cetera. And you, 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 you advance your own project as you see it. Um, and this, this whole notion of iconic as a sideshow, 
this is not the, the, the result of your work, which, which has very particular properties, which people understand at various levels. And um, by the way, I think the, the, the Bill Bao conversation is just, I can't tell you how boring that is. We've got to go beyond that. If we, for, if, at that level, it's actually destructive, I have to say. Just first, it is true, number one. And um, it's so simplistic. We've got to get into something a little more specific, a little more specific, a little more, a little more um, sophisticated. But it's um, you, you focus on the broad nature of your work, and I, I would say this has very little, um, very little influence, if, if any at all, that you yourself are struggling with the nature of a particular project and its outcome, of which the author is the most questioning. I'm the last person you'd want to talk to about my own piece of work because I'm questioning and challenging it, and I might have huge problems with it at any kind of time. And it's uh, it's but it's 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 the um, it's going to be my own analysis of the work within broader terms. And, and by the way, the, the look at something, um, one of the architects that had huge influence on me um, as a young man was James Sterling. Had a while to understand why his particular work was interesting to me. And I finally realized that um, it, there was an eccentricity to it, which had to do with a clumsiness in, in traditional formal terms. And I'm thinking of the tree um, and, and they were fascinating, and, and, and it really um, it had a kind of effect on me in realizing that both of your work could have extremely unique property, which had nothing to do with any kind of uh, traditional or an agreed-upon of a So the whole notion of the something to begin with, for me, is, is, is I'm less interested in, and it's a question mark, and it's something that I'm asking. And, and mm, people look at things, um, uh, at least it's been with my work, in many cases they found it's the same kind of um, clumsiness or ugliness, or how do they say it, our Caltrail building has been, has been demonized forever, ditto with, with, with Cooper Union, but it's, it's moved me to in, an interest in something that's compelling. Whether it's beautiful or not, I don't know if y'all's on the, if we've been having a conversation about beauty um, is, is on the, in this call or not. But it's um, what, what I'm interested in is something that's compelling. And like Diderot, it's interested in the intelligence of things. And then you can see something and you can somehow read um, the kind of questioning or kind of the thinking that went into this that, that, that has to do with the broader issues that you're struggling with. And the thing itself is um, a question mark. It's, in fact, I think it's it's interesting that so critic so few critics kind of talk about work this way. They say they so over are dependent on the look of the thing, and they miss the point. It's funny at Cooper Union, uh, everybody's talked about the way it looks. No one discusses the reality of the project having to do with the social pedagogy of this particular institution, its relationship to an urban place, its relationship to the um, uh, the East Village and kind of eccentricity of that kind of part of the city. We could go on and on in terms of the real reasoning of that piece of work that have um, that go way beyond the look of the thing and whether we agree upon it or not. Yeah, well, I think that goes down. I mean, we haven't got time to discuss it, unfortunately, this evening, but that, that taps in incredibly to what I would be very interested to talk and develop further, which is the rise of, or the dominance of a certain kind of media over the last 30 or 40 years in terms of uh, visual culture, the rise of a certain visual culture which demands 
a way of talking about architecture in a, in a certain way, the complexity of how that works it would be quite fascinating to me. But I'm going to move on from that simply because there's a, an interesting question from Sophia Edwards, who's talking about um, what everyone's very interested in at the moment about the post-pandemic world. Um, I've already said just before Sophia comes on, but I've already said that certainly in the last 10 years, I've been teaching at um, uh, the same school of architecture that Peter teaches at the Bartlett's and of course that um, Sir Peter Cook um, teaches at as well. Um, I've been teaching there for some time now. I'm teaching a generation, I suppose, that are they're very still interested in, in form making, but are increasingly interested in the political, social, um, economic aspects of architecture as well. Um, that's certainly a, how one engages with communities, um, whatever those communities are, whether those are communities in terms of um, mass globalization and the consumption of architecture and, and buildings, but also the people, the user groups that we use buildings, absolutely fascinated about how you create architecture of meaning to them. Um, I think this is obviously going to become something, uh, a key question um, after well, whatever culture comes out of um, the post-pandemic or the, uh, the pandemic world. Sophia, let, can you talk a little bit, please? Can you ask your question? Uh, hello? Hello, can we can you hear you. We can't oh, see you, hi. Oh, no worries. Um, uh, yeah, so my background's in, I did the MA Architectural History at Bartlett. Uh, ah, like graduated last year. Yes, you came to one of my lectures. Um, yeah, it's just a, I, I work for an architectural practice at the moment and we're very interested in kind of refurbishment over demolition. And my question was just along the lines of, we're talking about iconic buildings in the sense of, of something different and it is leading towards the aesthetic side of things so I think my question was just leaning towards how the socio-political context feed into that and how you know do we deem something iconic because of the wider implications that it's had on the public rather than oh it's iconic because yes it's been built by a certain practice or it delivered a certain um, I guess, a certain property to society, I guess. I don't know if that Are sense. you saying that we, our judgment of architecture, that actually how it performs in society in its multifarious ways should become, should rise in prominence in how we judge it? Yes, that, yes, yeah. That, that, and yeah, you think that's, that's and post-pandemic, you think that is going to become, in terms of how we judge buildings as a public thing, that's going to become far more important? Yes, definitely. I think it's just going to change the way that we view architecture and simply the way we move about the city because it then goes into the iconic nature of a pavement, a road, um, you know, components that build up the streetscape rather than just buildings, I guess. I think, that, well, I think that's very fascinating. I think over the last 10 years, um, during which we have critiqued this this, this I word in, in, in whatever way, um, other forms or other values or other qualities that architecture performs have risen in importance, I think, in, in terms of the collective and public memory um, as ways in which we can judge um, architecture. And I think that's only going to continue as we move forward. Peter, do we have you back? No, we don't. This is so annoying. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. I'd love to. I'd, I'm so sorry. I'd love to hear. I'd love to hear you. 
um, a little bit more. But perhaps we can talk, I'll talk with some of your other, of our other uh, guests this evening. Let's look from now, let's look at the perspective from now. To, to my mind, um, the culture that has, the socioeconomic culture, if you like, that has created the fertilizer, if you like, for the rise of um, iconic or visual culture within architecture has been predicated upon mobility, the mobility of capital and investment, the mobility of people around the world to consume architecture, to visit architecture. Um, and all of these kind of things are things that we have taken for granted until relatively recently that have risen since the 1970s, 80s and 90s, the boom of tourism, the internet, of course, the, the ability for visual imagery within architecture to flow around the world um, at the click of a, a click of a mouse, um, the ability for money to be able to go from one place to another. What's going to happen if that's not possible? Mobility has been ceased um, other than through the internet. Do you think, uh, well, let's go back to that original question that the Negroni talks. Can I have one more go? Can you oh, hear me? Back. Wonderful. Ah, good. Right. Well, <laughs> the, what I think is the problem, what we may be coming round to learning from this uh, pandemic, is that wherever it came from and however it started, it's tourism that spread it. Uh, it was all those people who went skiing and came home and killed their grandparents. So we really have to find a way of making better places and staying in them. I mean, the fact that we're able to have this meeting online, the fact that most businesses are now realising that they can spend much, much less on travel than they have in the past. Uh, the fact that we don't need international conferences, which are only an excuse for getting drunk. Then I, I think we will start to focus more on the places where we are and actually making them better. And I think that would be a jolly good thing. Uh, I mean, the first thing I would do would be to close the package airports in London. South End and Luton will be a good start. Um, we'll build homes on those because we're desperately short of homes. They're well connected for transport. And the journeys that are made through them are mostly optional. So I'm really pleased to see the airlines going bust at the moment. I mean, Fly Maybe was a start and that happened just before the pandemic started. Um, now I want to see the rest going down the plug hole. And the more other European countries subsidise their airlines, the more they're going to guarantee their failure. So that's really good news. Cruise ships, well, we can repurpose cruise ships. Some people think they're iconic. Um, they can be docked in um, developing countries to become universities and hospitals, provided some really useful feature, uh, future for them rather than, than cruise industry. Uh, and Venice can breathe a sigh of relief. So that, you know, Venice can go back to being an iconic place with um, less tourists in it. And yet, and yet, all of this, by which I mean the virtual, will of course still exist and will be almost receive even more prominence as we move forward in terms of a cultural form if we're not able to move around physically, which makes me think, well, maybe the iconic will perhaps, or a certain culture of architecture will become even more two-dimensional or three-dimensionally two-dimensional, our possibilities of being able to um, access it through the screen in some, in some way. So you may have these two poles that we may be much more forced to consider the immediate environment in which we live, but equally online, who knows, we may become, well, you know, the lure, the romantic lure of the pixel may become even greater. Tom, can you just butt in? Okay. Steve, 
Who's going to speak? You go, Amanda. Well, I mean, it depends on how people um, perceive the risk of another pandemic, doesn't it? I mean, if we are going to sort of all stay at home and never go out, um, I think um, architecture, along with everything else, is truly screwed. But as long as we're allowed to go outside, people are going to be drawn to these buildings we've been discussing, uh, whether we want to call them iconic or not. I mean, just for me, the National Theatre and Tate Modern, um, because they're both buildings I love, but also they're buildings where we connect emotionally with each other. And that's, um, that's kind of fundamental to human experience. So we are going to carry on commissioning great buildings, but whether or not the brief to the um, architect from the client is going to have the word iconic in it. I very much doubt. Yeah, I'm going to butt in there because I, I, I think the Tate Modern is appalling. I think <laughs> the Tate Modern extension is appalling as well. I mean, you've got an art gallery that's got about 70% mingling space, not art gallery space. Yeah, but uh, still a great connector. But sorry, but the point I was making was not really about the architecture so much as a a building where human beings connect. And I would say that Tate Modern is probably one of the most powerful in that respect, as is the National Theatre, because you don't have to be going to a play. You can yeah. just hang out in the... In the no, certainly I would agree with that. And that, that's what I was going to, to mention, Amanda. I think um, some of your points about the, the, the deadening or the, or, the, or the extinction of the word iconic, some of um, um, Tom's points and Peter's points, um, um, about the problem with the, the symbolism and the shape making and the form making. And, and then when Peter Cook mentioned the new heroism, I'm kind of thinking it's like, is there, is there a new kind of architecture that's going to come out of maybe the next 10 years or so, which um, is perhaps not really about um, what is fed to the public as a spectacle. That sounds quite post-Marxist, I'm sorry, but um, it's something that we can learn to celebrate as a, 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 a worthy and an intellectual building that means a lot to people. But does that have to be, um, yeah, I'm unmuted. I was, I was wondering, I mean, something I actually read actually in your intro, uh, Tom, to your book about, and you mentioned John Berger, and John Berger wrote about the idea of, you know, the, the difference between um, going to see a work of art and seeing it reproduced. And that was the whole way he started off that 70s program on the, you know, um, in it, sort of back to his book. The, if you, I mean, I remember the visceral sort of thrill in a way of walking around the corner and seeing something like the Roby House in America when I went there and, you know, as a, as a sort of degree student back in the day. And it's kind of because it's there physically and, and then that leads to a criticism in a way because you're able to engage with it. And I wonder whether there's a distinct lack of criticism when you deal with things two-dimensionally and you're unable, there's a barrier there. And that's sort of not reality in lots of ways. Um, and yet it is, of course. I mean, as in, uh, I, I'm actually, having, having been a great kind of critic of iconic culture um, or certain kind of iconic culture, I, I've since come to think much more, not fondly of it, but certainly um, the importance of visual imagery will of course continue. What I think is really important either is that 
architectural culture or the way that architects work or the what not necessarily what is asked of them but how architects work and how they open up a little bit in terms of the process of creating their imagery if i almost want them to be more iconic i almost want them to but i want them to be more interested in opening up to globalized pop culture i almost want them to be more pop and more engaged with pop more engaged with popular culture around the world in whatever that might be and that to me means about opening i don't know um being less uh, obsessed by details being less obsessed by certain things almost being more generous more open to other forms of visual culture that would be nice <laughs> really nice, but it's not going to happen. Oh, well, uh, I think it's it nice. Otherwise, it will just it will architects will just be replaced by other possible other formmakers. And, and can I, I just think it has. Say, I think there is a bit of an issue. Like, I, I someone asked a question earlier, which I think you repeated, Tom Dykoff, um, uh, about scale. And I, I do think, at least for me, when I think about iconic, there is a really big problem of scale. That it does seem that. But everything that many of the things that we talk about as being iconic and that all of these star architects have produced over the past 20 years are absolutely gigantic um, and they're produced by very large corporations either alone or in in, in concert with uh, local governments and it's kind of like an oligarchical approach to the city where only the the sort of oligarchical great figures of the huge capitalist and the the great star architect have the right to do things which are really different in any way or interesting. Like, I just think that they're interesting. And what's missing is the kind of, if you go back to, let's say, the early 20th century, when there was sort of the small scale of capitalism going a lot. Like, if you go to when New York was built up around Soho um, and late Victorian London, where every single building was sort of like fighting for attention. Um, you know, think about high Victorian high streets. Um, and there was like, a lot of visual interest going on. Everybody could be interesting because capitalism was occurring at a smaller scale. And it just seems that a lot of what we call iconic now is just vast and is very, very difficult to relate to. Whereas if there was a lot more of the smaller scale iconic, smaller scale capitalists uh, production going on, that maybe there would be more unusual and different kinds of things happening, not by defined entirely by a very small set of architects. Or non-capitalist. Let's 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 broaden our political yeah. spectrum slightly in terms of um, uh, you know I, I agree. I think you know the kind of the more the democratic iconic. I think there is a gap in the market for that moving forward. Um, I'm told that we have to draw it officially to an end. Um, I would like to, if people want to leave, they can leave. Of course, I'd like to have summations from our. Um, I feel like we haven't even we haven't had enough from all of you, um, incredible speakers this evening. Um, Maybe a, a point for those that have to leave now, a point to send them away to their, um, their dinner or their, or their beds. Let's start with um, Tom. <laughs> um, no, it's been interesting. I'm, I'm uh, after listening to you all, I'm more convinced of the, uh, the, the, the radical kind of transformation of the whole notion of iconic. And, uh, but it's interesting, I have to say, the relationship between our educational institution at this time, which is focused on um, a look at something, again, it's physiognomic, is absolutely kind of, I, I can't separate the, what's going on in the, in, in the academic world and was in this conversation. And that I would have said, um, as the owner of a, uh, a Tesla, um, 
Elon Musk to me is a much more interesting character in terms of um, dealing with large scale urban problems. So the first um, interest of, of, of his um, shift in the invention of an automobile is macro and could affect um, in the neighborhood of 45 or 50% of air pollution of a city like Los Angeles. The second is performance, and he produces something that's um, a, a, a car that replaces the Prius for an average family that has a performance of the fastest Ferrari that's produced at um, half a million dollars. And the third is the look, and it's reasonable. It's a well-designed thing, but it's not the focus of the car. And to me, it represents a, um, the reality of, of, of what we need to be doing today that starts with broad, urban, environmental, sustainable problems, and that the, um, I take the, um, the aesthetic for granted. That's what I do. I don't have to spend a lot of time focusing on that. Hmm. If I do, it's within my own subjective, private world. And that um, that will be translated and negotiated with the various realities of, of the various projects. And that um, I think the whole notion that in any way, if ICON continually focuses on the, the look of something, I think we've got problems. And I think it's, it represents also the radical diminishment of the role of the architect in society and shaping society even on a private or on a public level. And that we, we, we need to do just the opposite. We need to be expanding that role into really tangible problems of which the, um, the physical presence of the thing plays one of the roles. And, and, and I'm, I'm, you're speaking to somebody that's, that's dedicated my life to that, to, the, to that formal um, kind of experiment. But that's one aspect of it. It's something I see that's most private and the most connected to my own societal need. I have to, um, I've got another meeting I'm leaving, but it was really enjoyable to talking to listen to you guys. Well, thank you for coming. It's wonderful. Thank God for this technology that allows us to reach <laughs> across the oceans and continents. It's, uh, it's one of the many advantages of this, uh, of this format of talk. Thank you very much, Tom. It's just uh, yeah, late breakfast here. And no Negronis, although I'd have had a Boulevardier anyway, which is a Negroni. <laughs> See you all soon, okay? Wonderful to hear from you. Thank you, Tom. Uh, Amanda, you. Let's, let's have your final point. Um, okay. My final point is the world has fundamentally changed. I think architects are going to be in deep shit. I think... Uh, <laughs> Again? Clients, yeah, I think clients are those kind of self-important clients who sort of puffed up with this idea that all they had to do was go and hire um, a star architect um, to design a building where the outward sort of image was more important than its interior sort of whatever it did inside is kind of over. Um, and I think everything is gonna change in a way that we haven't obviously discussed because that wasn't, wasn't what we're doing here. But the, the icon, I mean, it was finished in 2006 and it's definitely finished now. Well, that's a good point. Yasmin. Yeah. I've got two points. One is we talked a bit earlier about the sort of visual, visual imagery and how this is going to change and how we're going to see buildings. We have to realize we're already in the age of Instagram. How many buildings, are not even the building, is uh, iconic anymore, but the door might be or whatever it is. So that has all changed. Uh, people perceive things very differently now and in much more detail due to those sort of um, social or a media than they have ever done before. So you don't even need to see the whole building, you just need to see the nice bits of it. So 
let's let's not fool ourselves we have already moved into that and the other thing is in regards to our architecture in this present time of covid as they said agnelia thing said if you want things to say the same then you have to change and we have to change in order to provide what we need to do for for the general public for the users for officers and for the better standards of health within this country and just generally thank you yasmin peter let's hear from you i think even before the pandemic we uh, the large parts of the world were moving from globalism to populism uh, and i hope the pandemic will have the effect of moving us quickly from that rather awful stage of populism in politics to localism where we can actually dispense with the politicians who are the real curse in this world and actually and reconnect professionals with communities because if people who've been trained in doing things and helping people can be connected directly with people to discover what it is they need and want then i think we can start to make better places so what i want to do is to make better places and for people to spend more time in them uh, if you don't go for uh, more than three weeks, you shouldn't be going. And the real curse is places where people only go for three hours, like Oxford Street. Those are the real hell holes of this earth. So the icon I'd like to see um, taking prominence is Hearth and Home. Thank you, Peter. And um, let's hear finally from Adam. I don't want to get all Opera Winfrey on us, but um, let's, hear from, let's hear from the younger generation. Cast us off in a direction as we as we finish the official part of this evening, Adam. Oh. Don't, don't grimace. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, it just the, the I you know I someone just typed like icon is now icon. Um, you know, icon as we knew it in the early two thousands is is definitely over. But the thing is, those um, uh, the programs and the scales that um they uh, dressed up. You know, like the makeup on the pig. Um, they were the spoonful of sugar that helped them, you know, the poison bomb go down. Those things are still being built um, and they're not even sort of being, there's no attempt even to make them sort of kind of look spectacular anymore. So look at, uh, I don't know, is it 24 Bishopsgate? This just a gigantic thing that is sort of bigger wow. than everything else in the city put together. And they don't even bother to make it try and look interesting. It's just a sheer wall of, a very nice sheer wall of glass. So, um, you know, the, the, the fear is that, um, Yes, okay, the superficial aesthetics have gone, but actually the fundamental typologies are still consuming our cities. Thank you very much. Well, I, I agree. I mean, I have, to, I have to agree with you, Adam. I think, um, I, I agree also to a degree with, with Amanda. I think, you know, perhaps, you know, who knows whether this is another bookend to the icon or whether it will, um, it will like a kind of a pantomime villain carry on staggering um, into life as we, as we move forward into whatever the future holds. Um, but the conditions that brought about the icon, i.e., you know, neoliberal capitalism, uh, global commun mass communications, uh, the internet, etc., etc., haven't gone away. Until those change, I think, I think the icon's still going to be with us for quite some time. But perhaps in a different form. Um, I do believe, you know, I agree with, uh, I agree with Tom Maine's, uh, you know, last points that perhaps there are other values, other ways in which we can judge architecture today which is which is great um but i think i've got to i think the visual the dominance of the visual will continue it's the way in which we talk about the visual the way in which we judge it and most importantly the ownership of the visual 
um, that will be and who decides what um, imagery gets built on our streets. Um, I think the democratization of other forms of uh, cultural creation will eventually extend to architecture and that engagement with other communities and letting other communities beyond architects and their clients decide what gets built will become will become dominant um but anyway that's my little two pen i want to thank everybody all the speakers official speakers from this evening all the questioners i'm told that this continues yeah um, in a kind of unofficial way i'll, I'll pass over to i don't know how that works because Tom, it's a, it's a it's a kind of an after party vibe so people drop off Okay. And um, the rest of us hang around until the bitter end. So, um, yeah, <laughs> last man standing or last woman standing, I should say. And we turn off all the mics, don't we? Turn on all the mics. Yeah, we do indeed. So, um, yeah, feel free to hang around. As yeah, I, I, I think we can open up all the mics now and just um, say a big thank you to everyone. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.